Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Trail Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner. Thank you for joining me on another journey across the podcast airwaves. It's official. My summer, I think, is now over. <laughs> and I say that because it seems like the last three summers, I've always talked to my next guest as he's finished up his summer adventure away from school. And now that I'm able to have this conversation with him, I feel like my summer is finally over. Uh, which I don't know if I'm too happy about, but Jason is joining me yet again. Jason Hardrath is joining me yet again to discuss his summer adventure away from school. This time, he was able to complete the first ever Infinity Loop uh, with his uh, climbing partner, Nathan Longhurst, down at Pico de Orizaba in Mexico. You know, I, I can't even... I can't even get into the explanation during the cold open because there's just so much that he he has to say about about this opportunity he had to do it or a second time around. The first time he he did it was uh, unsuccessful. So this time uh, it was, and the stories that go with it are amazing. Uh, and I'm just gonna let him get right into it with with his stories because. I'm not going to do it any justice trying to explain it here in the cold open. So let's just get right into it. Let's have that chat. Welcome back to the trail life, Mr. Jason Hardrath. Well, help me turn the turning. Well, help me get it right. I don't want to hurt nobody. Well, I don't want to fight. You know, it's kind of funny. I was, I was just sitting here, just rewatching the vid, the the movie, um, <laughs> to kind of refresh my brain from the last uh, last time I watched it last week. But I started thinking, I was like, you know, the last couple years, the last couple summers, I should say, you've been on the show to kind of show, like, tell me about your adventure, or tell the listeners about your adventure. So now it's become kind of this annual ritual, I guess, so to speak, that. <laughs> that my summer doesn't end until I hear your your story. So, <laughs> so maybe that maybe subliminally I didn't want my summer to end is which is why I haven't had a chance to get on the <laughs> on the podcast with you. <laughs> oh, that makes sense because if you're talking with me, then summer's over. That's I terrible. Get it. So I, I didn't want it. it to. I didn't want it to end, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I was looking. I was like, you know what? I think the last. I know. I mean, we've had conversations, you know, mid mid year and stuff too. But I'm like, you know, the the last couple summers we've ended with a good conversation about what you've, well, what you've done. So, uh, I and this is definitely one of the most interesting ones that you've had a chance to accomplish. So it's so I'm really excited to start this conversation and and hear all about your summer because it your summer makes makes mine look terribly boring so. <laughs> oh goodness what do they say Com comparison is the thief of joy i guess I'm, something I'm like that i'm sure you had a wonderful summer <laughs> busy but i didn't get a chance to go down to mexico and do a first ever infinity loop down there so <laughs> well to be fair that was actually my spring it's just now here wow. at the end of summer that we released the film from it yeah. so that was that was my spring break well, and then yeah still. over the summer the rocky mountain grand slam so which is just another conversation we can have later on but 
why we were talking about this today is where you just like you said you've just came out with the film uh journey to infinity and it is you and nathan longhurst uh attempting to do the first ever international infinity loop down at pico de orzaba is that right did i say that you right? nailed it yeah you crushed it yes. that's exactly right i've been practicing that name for the last two hours now um <laughs> just saying it in um, front of the mirror <laughs> exactly more than anything else i i it, i just kind of want i mean you and i have you know we've done this plenty of times before where we've been able to just have these free-flowing conversations which is great so i don't really feel like i even need to ask you a lot of questions about this but uh i think the because your stories are amazing um with the way you explain everything so what i really want to start off with first and foremost is kind of the explanation of to anybody that's listening in what what is an infinity loop and what makes this such a premier international infinity loop because in your movie you explain there are multiple infinity loops out there that you were looking to attempt down the road right but I, what i also thought was interesting in the beginning of the movie how you talked about you and nathan being partners with with this and learning how to be partners along you know, along the way so i'd like to hear kind of that because nathan also did part of the boulders with you so what's the dip so what's the difference with you working with nathan on that versus actually considering him maybe more of a partner uh along along this this adventure so again a lot of layers there a lot of layers I, there, there's um, a ton of layers and again i i do that so let's say let's say i'm just nathan, gonna say, <laughs> let's set nathan and i's partnership and that's such a huge theme in the film and people could literally pause our conversation yes. right now go watch the film and then a lot yes. more of this will make a lot of sense um link a link will be in the description i assume yep um but let's start pra with the practical get a little bit into history and legacy and then come back around to nathan and i as partners Perfect. Perfect. Um, so the super simple practical ways, imagine you have a figure eight, um, an infinity loop symbol. Both of them look the same. It's just the infinity loop symbols turned sideways instead of standing up like an eight does. Um, and you put the summit of a freestanding mountain, AKA a volcano, um, right in the middle of that figure eight. And then you kind of squish it down a little bit so that you go up one side of the mountain, down the other side of the mountain, you come around the mountain on the trail back to where you started. You go up and over the mountain again, usually at a very different time of day than your first trip over. Mm -hmm. And then you go around the opposite side, circumnavigate the other half of the mountain, completing this giant figure eight or infinity loop. Um, so that's the practical up one side, down the other, around upside, one side, down the other, around, um, drawing a giant figure eight. Um, into the history and legacy of it, a beloved late american climber named chad kellogg dreamed this up he was very into speed records he held the speed record on denali for a while um among uh, a litany of other peaks um he was a sponsored athlete uh back in his day and he dreamed this up but then passed away in patagonia before in a climbing accident before he was able to ever actualize this dream of his and so uh some friends of his, some some people who knew knew him and and who knew of him went went out and completed the first ever infinity loop on Mount Rainier. And that was kind of the first peak. He he always said it was for a freestanding mountain. Um, but obviously, like he was uh well, 
people may not know, he was a Pacific Northwest climber. And so Rainier kind of with its Wonderland Trail being so iconic and the routes on the mm-hmm. opposing sides of the mountain being so iconic. Um, that was kind of the first iteration. And so they they iterated that Rainier Infinity Loop. And back in 2019, that was a huge breakthrough uh, FKT for me to go chase. The original time had been like four days and four hours. It was down to two days, 11 hours by the time I attempted it. I went out solo self-supported to kind of have this test piece. It was the most mileage I'd ever covered. It was as much vert as I'd ever done in a push. Um, it was more glaciated terrain than I'd ever done in a push. And it was more sleep de- deprivation while constantly moving. I'd never gone into two nights of constant sleep deprivation. Um, so it was like all these experiments. And then, you know, you add that like personal test element mixed in with just sort of this like transcendent spiritual experience and connection with the mountain, getting to see it from every angle, climbing over it once at night and once in the day. Um just like two very different personalities from the exact same route. Mm-hmm. Um, it just made for such a incredible experience. Uh, I can remember I was on the adventure sport podcast. And when he, I talked about the Rainier infinity loop quite extensively. And when he asked me what was next, like right then I was, I was like calling my shot. It's like, I want to go take this to big international volcanoes. Like I, this is, that's, that's what's next. And then COVID happened. And so all international dreams just kind of got back um, and I went on to chase the, you know, 100 FKTs and the stuff I did here in the States to to get to that. Um, but the idea never left me. I was like, I definitely want to extend Chad Kellogg's legacy and dream to the tallest volcanoes of the world. And, you know, that gave me more time to like percolate on what that meant. And I came across the volcanic seven summits list. And I talk about this in the film, uh, this idea of like taking this beloved climbers idea and taking it to the most global possible list of peaks, the most global iterations, the the seven summits, you know, the seven volcanic summits. For those who don't know, that's the seven summits are the tallest mountain on each continent. And so, you know, in similar form, the volcanic seven summits would be the tallest volcano on each continent. And it's like this wild, probably impossible project because I'm still a school teacher. I mean, I do make money as an athlete as well. I do have signed contracts with uh, Athletic Brewing and with Viore uh, Clothing. And so I do I do make some money, but not $70,000 a person to go to Antarctica yeah. to bring my team over there. Um, well, like, and the, time, the timeline to do that, to go down to Antarctica has got to just be ins- absolutely insane to get all the way down there and get acclimated to that culture. So... I totally get it. And it's, it's wild. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So, anyways, to circle it back to Nathan and I, um, yeah. So it was actually, you know, again, I don't want to ruin it for people who want to watch the film completely, but right. When, when Nathan joined me on the Bulgers for 65 of those peaks and then ended up climbing the rest on his own, became the second person to climb them all in a season, youngest person at that time, just this year, he finally got his uh, youngest uh, throne taken from him. Um, his crown in that regard, a 20 year old college student went through and climbed them all in a season this summer um, with quite a bit of help from the both of us on the front end with his planning and logistics. So it was super cool to see that that legacy yeah. continue. But anyways, um, he was just sort of along for the ride, like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd be stoked to join you. Ooh, can I join you for another day? Like and then we hit it mm-hmm. off and just kept climbing. But he wasn't like out to put his name on the record, so to speak. Right. And, and, I, guess, and I guess more or less he would also to just be kind of cruising with you. Like you've already planned this out 
you kind of yep. know what your route has to be. So he's okay. So now I'm seeing the separation here. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, so right. He's, he's not in any, like his own personal drives and urges and desires aren't really on the table. It's just like, yeah, I'm out yeah. here to have an awesome time with this dude doing this cool record. Yeah. Um, and you know, he just loves mountains. And so that was the only thing that expressed itself. Well, we finally wanted to do something where we're putting both of our names on it, right? Like this is a, this is some best expression of both Nathan and Jason. And so this creates this interesting tension because he's, you know, he was 21 when he did the bulge with me. He's 23. Now he's only all the fitter, all the stronger at mm -hmm. the top of his game. Um, you know, he's climbing 513 B or C he's skiing like, absolutely insane coulars he's running ultra distances like you know they're going out of style like he's just fit and strong and at the top of his game and turns out he's a a quality like a high responder to altitude stress as well so like he performs well at high elevations and here i am at you know 34 i'm feeling a little beat up i still have some unresolved health issues um, that I'm trying to get sorted on and my blood work and, and some other things. So I'm not feeling at the top of game, my game, my training's not at the top of my game. And I'm, I have a, quite the opposite response to high elevation. I discovered that I have a propensity to high altitude pulmonary edema, swelling of the lungs where it swells so much that fluid breaks through your alve alveoli, um, and leaks into your airways. And so you start coughing up this clearish pinkish fluid and they call it the silent killer because um, people will like fall asleep and then not wake up because their lungs yeah. fill with fluid. And so it's a serious, it's a serious ailment. And I'd given it to myself really bad previously. I thought it was just because I was young and dumb back in my 20s because I would just go for summits with very little acclimatiz acclimatization when I would fly down to South America. And I thought like, oh, it's just because I'm being dumb. Like if I do it right, I won't yeah. have this response. Um and it just turns out like, no, I have a propensity to very easily end up uh, with pulmonary edema. And so I'm like wrestling with the PTSD of the times I've given, given myself hate really bad and like spent the whole night. Like I, all I could do all night was, you know, take 10 or 15 breaths normally and then cough for 15 seconds, like bend over and cough the fluid out of my lungs and then go, okay, cool. I'm going to do this all night and 15, 20 breaths, cough for 15 seconds and then wait for the rig to come evacuate me from the mountain. Like, okay, cool. Just stay awake and suffer all night. Yeah. Um, so I'd given myself this before and, you know, you get to see this tension develop over the course where he's feeling strong and fit and wants to truly test himself and lay it all out there. And me in this state of anxiety and like wrestling with like, is this going to get super bad? Like mm. just how bad will this get? I'm starting to feel the preclinical signs of it where my heart rate's elevated. My chest is hurting. I'm getting a little bit of crackling as I exhale deeply um, where it's like, shoot, how quick is it going to come? Like this is, these are the, all the precursors from having had it before. Um, am I going to finish this thing or am I going to drop out? And yeah, just, it just creates this tension between the two of us that we have to wrestle with and resolve over the course of, of the effort. Um, you know, is he going to drop me and leave me behind or 
are we going to continue on as a team? What's the, what are the higher values? What's the greater good? Is it, you know, better to push for the faster time and, and leave someone behind, or is it better to yeah. finish, finish out the thing together as a team, as friends? Um, and yeah, you know, without giving anything away, you get to watch that very question get wrestled with and resolved over the course of journey to infinity. Yeah, it, it, it actually, you could start to see it develop, you know, within that first, I think, I think it ended up being the first full night, I think that you kind of, kind of started feeling it right. Or the, the second, second loop or whatever it was, I can't remember, but you can kind of start to see that's right when you're talking about the tension kind of sets in a little bit and it does make for uh, an interesting, you know, story as far as, okay, what's, what's the process? What's the thought? you know, from his perspective and your perspective and everything else. And it's, you know, that's, I guess, going into it was how much of that was your conversation as you two are planning this as you go, like it, how much of those conversations played, played the factor of, Hey, by the way, this is, this is my stress level as far as, you know, the, my, you know, having hape and, and his, his different, fitness level and stuff like that. Like how much of those were conversations you guys were leading into it as you prep for this entire thing? Oh, everything was on the table. Like we, we'd known each other well and were able to be clear and honest. There was no masquerading or faking yeah. or covering yeah, anything yeah. up. Um, but it's like, you can have ideas of how stuff is going to be theoretically. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can have ideas of how someone's character will manifest itself um in the moment and what their values will be but you can't really be sure until you're truly in in the throes of it like you make yeah. your best guess because right we all hold models of our friends of people we know in our head like oh yeah when when this person is in this sort of situation they act like this you know um we we hold those sorts of models of people and it's like you kind of have models of your friends in your head and it's like i think this is what they'll do yeah. but I also could see it going this way because in other situations similar, like maybe I've seen him make this decision when it's like this and mm -hmm. the situation we're going to step into has a little of both. Um, you know, where Nathan is very much a do it on my own dirt bag <laughs> wants to push yeah. hard, uh, very much a soloist, very much a, you know, get out there all on my own kind of person. Um, and so while he's a good friend and a great supportive person and, um, kind and thoughtful it's like when push came to shove which version is going to manifest itself the the driven soloist or the the person who's a good friend and a, yeah. and, a and a supportive human being um so yeah it's like you know we all we all face like versions of that though right where you know you want to go into business with a you know, a friend or someone, you know, and it's like when you're not in that context of, well, now both of our names are on this yep. now, now, it, now we're playing with some skin in the game. Um, like before that, everything's fine. Like you get along great. Like it's all good. You, you think you really understand each other. Well, you communicate well, you, you chill out, like everything's chill and enjoyable. And then you step into this. Okay. Now skin is in the game. And suddenly it feels like a different person. And they're kind of like, maybe they're an asshole, like whatever, yep. like, you know, it's like, yep. wow, this person's overbearing and controlling and da da da. It's like, oh, well, that's, that's all of those drives getting turned on of them thinking, well, this matters now. 
like my skin is in the game like we we got to go hard um and yeah it's like you can't fully know how a person behaves in a new set of circumstances until you're in those circumstances together um that's one of the things that's so beautiful about the mountains right is is the friendships you can form there and the relationships you can form there um they're so raw and real like you've seen that person's character played out in a variety of circumstances where if you were just if they were just the friend you were grabbing a beer with after work you wouldn't really know them to the same degree as if it's a person you've kind of walked through the thick of it with out in the mountains yeah what um you know getting into you know orizaba you you attempted orizaba end of last year was that into 2022 right yep. when december when hate, 2022 christmas when you, break yeah when some of your high altitude sickness kind of came into play like yeah so getting like this had to have been kind of that on that list of like redemption in a sense like got to get out there and got to do this and as you're prepping for it what's kind of your stress level personally going into this as, okay, I knew, I know that I got down here. I didn't climatize correctly. Um, like, was there, what kind of other prep did you end up having to do? Oh man. Kind of um, looking into this because that, that definitely has to affect, that definitely affects the stress level. It definitely plays a part of mentally like shit. I just want to get out there onto the trail this time around, you know, and instead of having those issues with not even sleeping, can't, you can't even get get going can't get the first step out there right yeah for those who don't know the backstory i had to uh get evacuated from the mountain december 2022 uh we did this effort in uh, um march 2023 um and yeah it was i i hadn't even started my push yet i was still in my acclimatization um process up at the hut at 14,000 feet and it was my third night up there and developed the hape symptoms and had to call for a rig to come pick me up in the morning um and so that was the you know the night i mentioned where it was like okay just stay up all night coughing up fluid and wait for the rig to arrive in the morning um so yeah i mean between that day and um going back in march I utilized a altitude tent. Um, you know, you can't get the full benefits of actually being up in thinner air because all the altitude, you still have the same pressure, partial pressure of air. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's just the level you're at. Um, but it scrubs some of the oxygen from the air. So it does cause your body due to the drop in um, oxygen in the blood because of the reduced content of oxygen in the air of the tent you're sleeping in. Um, it does cause your body to produce more red blood cells so that it can transport oxygen better, which reduces the likelihood. Because right, the trigger mechanism for high altitude pulmonary edema is the drop in SpO2, that's how much oxygen concentration is in your blood, this, the blood saturation, uh, O2, um, triggers increased heart rate and vasodial, or excuse me, vasoconstriction in the lungs, particularly. And then that triggers the heart rate to go higher because it's trying to get more 
blood to pump through the lungs to oxygenate it. But then that also tra- creates a feed forward loop where the two are feeding each other. So now you're, you're can continually constricting more, um, in the arteries or excuse me, in the veins of the lung and your heart rate's going up and up and up, regardless of whether you're moving or sitting still. And pretty soon the blood pressure gets so high that it starts to fill the, um, intercellular area, the intercellular matrix of your lungs with fluid to the point it finally ruptures through into your airways. Um, and yeah, it was like, I need, I need to do everything I can. So I was like sleeping in this elevation tent to get that little benefit, even though it's like not perfect. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I was taking weekend trips to go sleep at, you know, the highest I could reach in, you know, the middle of winter, uh, like 8,000 feet. Um, I think was about the highest I could get to, to sleep, um, on the weekend. Um, yeah, just preparing for like low, like zone one cardio, just keeping being able to move consistently and slowly and patiently. Um, cause if you trigger, if you trigger a high heart rate at those elevations, it's not like where you can run a wind sprint at sea level. And then you're like, oh, I can just flop on the grass for like three minutes and my body goes back to kind of pretty much being normal. Um, It's like if you overdo it at 18,000 feet, it's like an hour later, your heart rate is still like the stress on your system is still being processed. Yeah. And and so it's like that that added stress can trigger the hate as well. So it's like, okay, I have to be really good at my pacing. I can't, I can't accidentally go too hard for 15 minutes, even if it's just a little bit too hard and cause my body to go into a spiral where my O2 levels drop and it triggers this, uh, hate feed forward loop to start. Cause once it starts, it's like game over. Um, I also got what's called nifedipine, which is one of the only things, you know, people talk about diamox, um, for, you know, out, mountaineers will use Diamox to be able to do more speedy ascents uh, with their uh, without as much acclimatization. And the thing about Diamox is it really doesn't help with hape. Yeah, most people don't have a proclivity to get hape. They they get haste more often, swelling of the brain. And Diamox is great preventative for that. It's less great for uh, high altitude pulmonary edema in mm-hmm. particular. Um, and so I discovered that nifedipine is one is a drug that it, it vasodilates basically the lungs. So it blocks that feed forward loop. Um, the downside to it is that when you're on it, you feel all like lightheaded cause your blood pressure is low. So it's like, I could use it during the acclimatization process, but I didn't want to be using it during the effort itself because I was going to be up there feeling all like woozy. Um, So it was like this interesting, like how do I put these pieces together in the correct sequence to minimize risk and, and maximize the potential of success for this thing. Yeah. Um, What's the, uh, are you climatizing again for three, three nights before three days before you guys started out? Or is that, we had a total of nine days to do the trip. So I think I got a process of, about six days, seven days to, to try to acclimatize. Oh, um, 
Yeah. And it's, I guess too, like you guys got, uh, you were a little delayed in getting up to, to the mountain. Uh, there were some issues with, with transportation and all that stuff and everything else. So lost bags. Wanna, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, and when you're down in Mexico, you're a little bit higher elevation anyway, down in this Mexico city area and stuff anyway. But, um, I kind of want to get into the statistics of, uh, Orizaba and kind of where you're at within the country. Um, and as you said, you know, there was a little bit of a little bit of a lost baggage issue trying to get from one country to the next in a short amount of time and everything else, which again, adds immense stress onto the start of this thing, even before you get onto the mountain. Um, so give kind of that quick statistic of, of what you guys are in for, right. Elevation gain or where you're at in altitude versus where you're even at in the country. So people have a little bit of idea there too. Uh, yeah, I think Mexico city is somewhere just below 8,000 feet. Um, then I think Lachichuca, the kind of mountain town of Pico de Orizaba is two bus rides away. Um, one first class bus, one second class bus. Um, and it's, I think it's right around 9,000, I want to say 9,000 feet in elevation. Um, so we kind of, as quick as we could with the, you know, <laughs> lost bags and all that, we managed to pull it off in the same day. Um, make the transition to Lachichuca, um, kind of the, the predetermined goal for everyone on the team, uh, filming support and Nathan and I was to be ready to go straight to 9,000 feet to sleep without any problems. Mm -hmm. Um, so we went there, I think we spent, uh, that night and the next day there, uh, getting sorted on logistics and, and, uh, supplies and all that stuff we needed. And then on the next day we went up the South side and did some filming and figured out where the hut would be that Alden would support us at, um, Alden Grant Rhino, he he was our south side support guy and kind of the emergency evacuation guy if I had needed to drop out or if Nathan yeah. had. Yeah. Um, but I, we all knew I was kind of the the squeaky wheel, the one that would, <laughs> would need the extra attention, uh, most likely. And so we we went and got stuff sorted over there. And then we uh came back down, slept at Lachichuca again then went up the north side to the hut, the Piedra Grande hut. And I think we spent two nights there. And then myself and the film team came back down because I was starting to wonder if I was getting mm-hmm. kind of uh, preclinical symptoms, elevated heart rate, um, a little bit of pressure in the lungs. And I was like, well, I should go sleep low one more night and then come back up before yeah. the effort. Um, just to be sure I don't cause it to set in. Um, so Nathan stayed up that night cause he was doing fine. And I went back down and then the next day we started. Yeah. What, um, where does weather play into factor of this? I mean, with you guys being up so high, I mean, how, how much of the communication are you having with, uh, meteorologists or, or whatever it may be f- to figure out like start time, like what's the best start time versus weather. Um, when you guys are going, like, how does that play into a factor? 
Yeah, we played a super fun game with this one. Um, we we were in touch with Chris Tomer. You see him in the film. You hear him in the film on the phone. Um, he's a great, great resource for mountaineers to help plan weather windows for trips. A lot of people have used him all over the world. Yeah, we called him up and it was like, okay, you've got kind of these afternoon storms to to duck out of. You don't want to be up high during you know thunderstorms. And then you've got uh, morning precip, like snow. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, we don't want to be caught up in the snow at 18,000 feet in, you know, because we're trying to pack light, right? It's like, yeah. how little can we bring so that we can move as efficiently as we can at 18,000 feet? <clears throat> so it's like this balance. I was like, okay, so if we start at 5 a.m., we can basically start as the weather clears and get this clear weather window all the way up over the summit. And then as we get low and start coming around the mountain in the lower terrain, thunderstorms roll through. And, you know, we just hope that we're kind of down in the trees or low enough that it's a a non-issue and we're not exposed. And then by the time we finish coming around the long side of the mountain, which is about a 20 mile circumnavigation, um, and start up the mountain the second time, the storms have cleared for the evening and we get a clear evening climb over the mountain. And then it's just a matter of finishing the shorter side uh, of the circumnav. And so, yeah, it was kind of like playing between these two weather cycles where it's like, oh, we're just going to like jump through and then jump through again um, and catch catch both good windows while we're up high. There was a, a term that Nathan was stating on, on, on the movie. It was, is it dust on crust? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's from skiing. Yeah, dust on crust. <laughs> I, that was the first time I'd heard that. And I thought that was quite funny where it's, it's, he, he explained it as two inches of snow on top of really hard, hard ground. Right. So how much of the, how much snow is actually still up there in this, in this juncture of. So, so when he says that in the film, he's using it as a reference to yes, yes. The, the scree, the rock on, yeah. so on the, on the North side, it's glaciated. So you're like, you know, crampons climbing the glacier mm-hmm. so you don't slip and slide all the way down for 2000 feet. Um, but on the South side, it's exposed to the sun. And so it's completely dry. So there wasn't any, there wasn't any residual snow. It had like melted and, and dried and all that, um, or had enough, uh, residual heat to not, um, from the precip overnight, it didn't stick. Um, so when we started down, what he was actually kind of referencing is uh, those of us that are trail runners, we might think of it like uh, marbles on concrete or something mm-hmm. uh, instead of like yeah. deep gravel where you're yeah. like, oh, OK, cool. Like I can just sink into it and slide with it. It's like that first part for the first like, I don't know, 300, 400 feet. It was like these marbles on on top of this really steep concrete. Um and just like trying to find the spots that were at least a, like an inch deep instead yeah. of just like pure marbles sitting right on top where you're just <laughs> wiping out all over the place. Um, so yeah, it was, it the top of it was kind of treacherous. Um, but then as soon as we got in, we kind of found a, a, a deeper section and then you could just like open it up. Cause you were just plunge stepping like ankle deep. Was that the, uh, the section where you were dropping 3000 feet and you yep. were just, is that what we're talking about right there? Yep. Yeah, okay. no, it's like that, three thousand feet of vertical and just like no as time you're, flat. As you're watching that, it it had to have been one of those things where it, you're you're trying to, like you said, you're trying to find that spot, but at the same time, you 
you can get going really fast down down that stretch, right? So you don't want to blow it out <laughs> too much. Um, so that's that. I thought that was always quite interesting. Is like watching you guys do that, where it's like, and I think Nathan is that like the the ego aspect of it comes in where you're trying to look good for the camera, <laughs> 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 and yet trying to be safe at the same time. So that that uh, that had to do it. I. I have to jump in here. One of my one of my favorite little things I slipped into the film is, uh, you know, those of us who are trail runners might not know this, uh, but in ski videos, one of the common things with big backcountry ski films is they always communicate via radios. And so all the time mm -hmm. in ski films, you'll you'll hear it before the first person comes down the mountain who is like, maybe this is going to trigger a giant avalanche or maybe everything yeah. will be fine. Uh, you'll hear them like count it off on the radio to the to the helicopter like all right three two one dropping and they'll drop in and ski the line and i was like oh i'm so gonna i'm so gonna say that over the radio while <laughs> while, the, while the cameras are running so that it ends up in this running film and so yeah there's a little moment if people listen for it in the film where we're about to drop down the screen and I'm just like three, two, one dropping. <laughs> and I just got a kick. That was my own personal enjoyment. So I was really happy that Kevin, Kevin kept that at the film. <laughs> I, I, speaking of the filmmakers, they did, I mean, Kevin did an amazing job with this thing, but you know, I think I asked you this, uh, when it came to the last you know, movie, you guys did journey to 100. What, what was the process for, the, the cameraman and the filmmakers, because you see those guys standing up on top of the mountain too, with the drone footage and all of that stuff. Like what was, what was their prep going into this and how much of, of it did they stick with you guys along the way? Was it something they kind of started well in advance to kind of catch you mid, mid climb? What, what was their, what was their process with everything? Yeah, absolutely. We had to sit down and pencil this all out. We used the Cal Topo map. Um, you, know, you see that pop up a few times in the film that yeah. had had all these all the data points and and the the map and the GPX file, and we just drop different pins like okay this is a beautiful area of the mountain that's kind of key to capture this is a beautiful area so okay you know basically it was like shifts it's like all right so Hayden gets to the summit leaves early and gets to the summit before we even start um, Kevin gets to bottom of the glacier before we start. Um, and we try to time it so that it's like, oh, well, if we're leaving at this time and we're moving at this rate, which is our yeah. theoretical pace, then the longest they would wait if they left at this time would be X amount of time. Like, how much can we reduce that while having a safety buffer that they don't miss the shot? Right. Um, so like, OK, that's shift one. And then one of them can uh, bust out to, you know, around on the trail a bit to catch us coming around uh, on the east side and the other one can catch us at the hut as we go through and do our resupply and then we start up the second time. And, you know, a lot of this is like on GoPro as well when no one's with us. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the trail miles in between, is just Nathan and I on GoPro and anyways, then, okay, go up and over. Alden was given a camera. So anytime we came through his aid station, um, that that could be captured and kind of comings and goings, um, from there. And then, yeah, we did we did some pre-filming as well. So when we went out to do like uh, route rehearsal, like memorizing, mm -hmm. like, OK, here's the trail. Here's the turn. Don't get lost here. This is kind of confusing. Remember this uh, when we were just out like 
pre-acclimatizing, um, right, on just acclimation hikes, we would go out and like rehearse different sections. Like, oh, just bring the cameras along and record a bit of this yeah. um, while we're here. So that way we can get what this looks like um, without having a cameraman having to chase us for 40 miles. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's kind of the way we pieced it all together. It's just like planning out like times and locations that would create the shortest distance of travel for the camera crew, the two yeah. guys that did this, Hayden and Kevin, and then maximize the amount of footage we got and then making sure we got footage during the whole uh, acclimatization process as well. Yeah. yeah, the drone footage is just epic. Like, Oh, it's so the, good, right? Every, oh my God, everything they captured from up top is just unbelievable. Um, and it, I, I, that's why I'm always kind of interested in how how that process looks and the logistics, because that that's again another factor that you know the everyday average Joe wouldn't kind of play into fact of hey we're going to go out and do this do this infinity loop or we're going to go out and do this climb like okay you guys need to be in position at certain points in time and everything else and it's um, and I know that the filmmakers aren't doing that on themselves that's stuff that they're relying on you guys to also you know work with them uh their logistics and stuff too so uh when it comes to you're talking about doing course rehearsals you know um and how that works there's a section in there uh and i can't remember first night second night second loop first loop third loop. i can't i can't remember that exactly but there ended up being some bushwhacking sections in, yep. a, in, in some of that area like how much of that were you guys anticipating and how much uh, more, or le- more or less uh, did you end up having to do? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> um, so I had in, in my December iteration, I'd gotten out on one of my acclimatization hikes uh, on the east side, the long side. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trail was pretty good. Like there was a couple of spots that it was like, oh, yeah, it gets really thin here. Um, but there's some cairns, like not that bad if you're experienced in sort of mountain running and route finding and like mountain. Yeah, all that. So it's like, okay, this is fine. This is good. And for the most part, it was great. It was like good single track trail. And I was like, okay, so that's what the east side is like. And then when we did our our route recon, our research and all that, it looked with the sections we were able to get to immediately on either side, like as we came at it from the north side, as we did that day on the south side and kind of went a little bit. It was like, oh yeah, this all looks pretty good. But everything between where those two points were just, <laughs> I mean, it was just hit and miss hit and miss where sometimes we're just scrambling in the middle of nowhere up like loose rocks for 300 feet. Yeah. And then like, where's the trail? Um, and it had overgrown or been washed out because of flooding that had happened there. Yeah. Um, and it was just like a free for all through the night. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, that it, itself, it just the suspense of, yeah, I, I don't know. When you're on a when you're going a trail at, at night anyway, and you've got the actual trail itself to follow, it can still be a little stressful because you're still watching out for how the trail terrain goes, you know, goes with the flow. But I, I couldn't even imagine being in a in an international volcanic area where you're not really understanding what's what's there, what's not there, what what's underneath you, having to bushwhack some of that stuff. I mean, that's <laughs> How much time did that end up adding into 
either oh, one man. of those loops. Oh man. Because you, uh, you guys had to do so you had to do the loops in, in certain amount of time to obviously get within your window of it. So that had to have played a factor of oh shit, we just thought we were gonna be cruising on this section and now all of a sudden we're bushwhacking for two or three hours of of time here trying to yeah no it was zigzag up the mountain right so it was a good amount of bushwhacking on that say i would say we spent at least at least at a minimum 50 percent of the time uh with the trail being washed out or overgrown um just like having to like choose the best seeming line um and then eventually suddenly it's like oh like here's the trail like cool it's back and then we'd get we'd be able to cruise for a bit. And we like had thought it was going to be like, oh, cool, put the pedal down, hammer it into the finish line. And instead it was like you get two minutes of trail and now turn your brain back on. Don't get lost. Yeah. And then like you do that for five or six minutes, seven minutes, sometimes 15 minutes. And then, oh, OK, cool trail. And then you put, you know, put the hammer down and it's like as much as you can at 14000 feet. And then you get, you know six minutes of trail and then boom you're back off again so yeah it was uh it was pretty intermittent on that west side i think it's because they had a flooding event um just prior like after the trail had been uh built because it is a fairly recently built and established uh circumnavigation loop so yeah. yeah i think they had a flood a flooding cycle there after some storm cycles that washed it out pretty severely what were some of the other you know obstacles you guys saw on the trail that you didn't expect like and it could be anything from terrain itself to you know like you said there was a little bit of flooding in certain spots i mean wildlife like what whatever you guys having to work around um, on the fly even i mean that's you know for the most part that's what you end up having to do um i mean it was really interesting that that scene from the film that just flies by in, in the film itself where we're down in the thick mist we're in the clouds yeah. that were below us the whole day and we're just like going through these mexican villages where no one speaks a word of english and <laughs> neither nathan nor i have very good spanish um and we're just like walking through and they just kind of like stare at us as we're going through we're just like what the heck is this <laughs> who are these gringos <laughs> who are these gringos and what the heck are they doing um as we're just kind of on that low part uh that was unexpected and interesting you know there's some some livestock as well through there that you know you wouldn't see or hear it and then suddenly you'd startle it and it would startle you because it would take off um you know yeah at one point there was a a uh mexican cowboy coming down the hillside above us and it was like sent a rock rolling past us and it was like what the heck and it's like oh oh it's just this is probably his land <laughs> um, and yeah just some stuff like that that was unexpected um and then i mean you have to remember that the whole time we're doing all of this for the most part we're at the summit of mount rainier the summit of you know mount whitney while we're doing the circumnavigation um very you know not super often are we much below that mm -hmm. and just covering a 40 mile day where that's your low point is uh it just changed it right it it skews everything or you know think think about route finding but then think about route finding with the the mental haze that sets in when you've been up at fourteen thousand feet for a long time yeah um it's like everything you're doing you're like did i just do that right 
am I right there? Am I looking at this correct? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what was the, I don't remember exactly. What was the time you guys were needing to do this in or what was the current, the current time? Well, there was the, we were establishing this one. No oh, one had, sorry, no one had right. done it. That's right. Um, but we set ourselves a goal, um, that we wanted to do it in under, under a day, under 24 hours. Cause there's, that was kind of the minimum goal, like do or die, ride or die. Like let's yeah. do this. Um, we, we theoretically thought that 20 hours would be possible. Okay. Um, but then with the, the trail, how it was and me battling the, the high the preclinical high altitude pulmonary edema symptoms, um, we had to kind of change goals and go with the 24 hour goal, which we were really happy to, uh, maybe or maybe not pull off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'll have to watch cuz I'm not we're we're not going to give anything away cuz it's it's <laughs> definitely worth the watch the entire entire stretch. I I actually love how there's parts of it where you guys are where the the directors kept it in, right? Where you guys are counting down like, "Hey, we we've got X to do, you know, we've got X amount of hours to do this or then you can kind of it's leading up to like shit. It's like are these guys going to get this and again it's as we brought it back to you know that first conversation about the partnership side of things like there's that struggle of can he or can't he do it with, with it or is he or is he going to go by himself and stuff too so it's um i unbelievably amazing film and i'm i'm excited that you guys continue to, to do this jason and and put these things out there because it's you know, what you, what you yourself or have able, have been able to attempt by yourself has has been phenomenal. And it's cool to see you doing these things with, with other individuals. Like you said, it's all about legacy and passing on, passing the torch down the road. Right. So you having this, these moments with guys like Nathan and seeing how they're going to, you know, progress along the sport is, is amazing. So it's, it's a really cool you know, piece of the, of the movie that, that show, you know, showcases that. So I, I, I appreciate you guys having that. I'm excited that, you know, Kevin, the director was able to blend that in to, to the, to the show or the movie this, this time around. So. Yeah, no, I mean, at this point, and I, I say as much in the film as well, at this point in my adventure career, if you can call it such a thing and, yeah. and, and my approach to education and philosophy and life is it's like, the important thing is how many people can I impact and help mm -hmm. believe in the good and the big things they can go for? How many people can I help move the needle forward for them? Yep. And then what are the valuable stories I can tell? Yeah. Um, and I think the fact that this story that, you know, and even having some presence in the moment with it, like understanding that as this tension developed between Nathan and I, it's like, I kind of knew it's like this is now the val most valuable message mm -hmm. of like how we play this out, how we handle this is either going to be a really valuable story, like a positive lesson. Yeah. Or it's going to be the anti lesson for, for people. Um, when they watch this, they're going to either see it and go like, Oh, like this is really inspiring and valuable and helps me like understand, uh, partnerships in like tense situations, or it's yeah. going to be like, Ooh, that felt like it shouldn't have gone that way. Um, and yeah, I guess people, again, will have to, have to watch the film have and, to watch and the find film out which, which lesson. So, <laughs> um, so I, 
I, I, I would love to hear this because again, you're, you're a, a teacher, a PE coach. So what were, what was the reaction from, from your students? I have not had an opportunity to show it to him yet. No. Um, as as the um as the film was coming out, I developed COVID for the second time. That's been really fun to recover from. Um last week was still like so this was two weeks ago as the film was coming out. And then last week I was still just barely getting through the day. So I guess okay. I could have shown the film, but I like had stuff I was supposed to get done with them. Um and I'd missed the whole week prior. So it was yeah. like kind of playing catch up. And so, yeah, I still need to, I still need to show it to my students. They, they're going to get to see it. And, uh, how, how a, much of a, a feeling, how much of a conversation, cause you did this in March during spring break. So you coming back to school with the kids and they have to, you know, like you, that's has to be the conversation you're telling them, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to go attempt this, you know, over spring break. Like what's some of the, <laughs> you know, without them seeing the movie and all that stuff, like what, what are some of their reactions or questions to you coming back to school, you know, from spring break? Like, Hey, Mr. Hardrath, we, we went to the, we went to the beach this, the, you know, for spring break. What did you do? <laughs> like, what's, what do you, what do you get kind of the reactions from, from your students? Oh man. Um, I love it. Especially with the young, cause I teach for those that don't know, I teach K through 12 or excuse me, K through six PE. Um, I used to teach K through 12 PE, not anymore. Um, so I do, I'm the elementary PE teacher. And so, yeah, I, I'll do show and tell days when I come back from yeah. big mountain adventures. And so, yeah, I did, I did do a little bit of a pre, a little pre-talk to kind of cue them up so that they'd be kind of stoked on what <laughs> Mr. H is going to go do over spring break. Uh, the same with my big summer project, the Rocky mountain grand slam, a little, little, little pre-drop and then come back and see who remembers and see who wants to know more. Um, but yeah, with this one, they were, they were pretty excited because, you know, it involves like, you know, for them, it's like traveling to a foreign country like that yeah. by itself is just such a, just out there concept. Like I'm going to go to a foreign country. Not only am I going to go to a foreign country, I'm going to travel around, around within that country to their tallest mountain. Not yeah. only am I going to go climb that mountain, I'm going to go attempt to do this wild thing called an infinity loop and getting to describe that to a bunch of kids. And I'm just like, um, yeah. And then, and then telling them afterwards when they're like, Oh, did it work? It's like, yeah, it worked. Um, yeah, it's a cool experience. It's a cool experience. Um, so with the last film, you did a little bit of a, a movie premiere tour. Is that something that's kind of on the docket for this one? Because I would love to, uh, see it come back down to San Diego and, and do a little thing down at Patagonia again. Are we, are we looking at something like that again? We are, we are currently in the, in the works with that, my friend. Yeah, no, nice. um, I want to do San Diego. Uh, want to do LA. Um, I think there's a, a crew over in LA that wants to bring me in to do a showing. So yeah, two chances for anybody who listens that's in, um, SoCal and who knows, maybe I'll, maybe I'll find a couple other California based locations, uh, Seattle and Portland are on the docket. Um, I might do something over in Denver as well. Um, and beyond that, like it's all like, I've been, I think I've been invited a couple other places. Nathan might do one in Salt Lake city. Cause he's over there, uh, crushing, crushing mountains, yeah. um, in the Salt Lake city area right now. So now yeah. was this, was this, uh, I know you're sponsored by athletic brewing company and Viore and stuff. Is this all part of their 
sponsorship with you is putting this movie together or was this something you you did you know personally this was uh this one was kind of out of pocket i mean got some smaller support from uh various brands that kind of help cover expenses but it definitely wasn't a fully funded film project uh you know kevin did 1500 hours of editing in post and pretty much all of it was unpaid um like we just kind of covered our expenses and went down there and had a ripping time in in Mexico and <laughs> captured a bunch of footage and then he did all of the all of the editing work pro bono just cuz he believed in the in the project and he believed that we could do something with the with the story and get support for future adventures together for him to actually be properly funded so you know if anybody is listening and wants to fund a film adventure I'm actually going to later today hop on uh, a call with the team for the Ojos del Salado Infinity Loop, um, which is the tallest volcano in South America. And it's planning to go this December over my oh. Christmas break as a teacher. So yeah, if somebody <laughs> wants to somebody wants to buy a film and uh, cover, cover the cost. <laughs> you're you're, you're, li- you're listening if anybody wants to buy a film. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Feel free to get a hold of me. Yeah, man. Uh, well, thanks again, brother. Appreciate it. It's, it's always fun having you on. Like I, I, like I said at the earlier, like, I don't really feel like I even need to research and like put together a lot of questions because your, your storytelling with you is just nice. I just kind of let you kind of go and talk about it and <laughs> it kind of comes together. So just wind, my, wind, wind me up and, yeah, and exactly, let me go. Yeah, hundred percent, man. So it, it kind of makes my, my, my job a little bit easier as a host to, to, to sit here and listen to this. So I, I appreciate you. And unfortunately now my summer is over with now that I've had, had this conversation. <laughs> right. So <laughs> luckily down there, it's like, I know. does anything really change? It's like, no, you're going to go out doesn't. in a t-shirt it, and shorts. You know? I, I, know. I am today. It's just, yeah. We are actually hotter now uh, in the first week of October than we have been for the last three, three months. So, you know, technically my summer is not over, but in theory, I guess it is because I've talked to you, but God damn it. <laughs> it's always a pleasure though. So thank you. I appreciate it. Jeff, this was a pleasure. The Trail Life Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Stoner. Music was provided by the Poor Dirty Astronauts with lyrics written by Matt Meyer. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this episode and the entire Trail Life Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Amazon, or anywhere you find your favorite podcast episodes. Thank you again for listening in, and we'll see you out on the trails real soon.